the costume I wore with my wife was not one of my prouder moments in life. Uh, it didn't come off as well as I envisioned it. Um, <laughs> I thought I would look much better in camouflage with face paint than I actually did. But it was a vast improvement from the year before. Um, what I wore was so uh, interesting that people didn't know I was wearing a costume. <laughs> Throughout the evening, people were asking, are you, are you changing your style or this is your, is this your costume? So I was quite embarrassed to see that, not only once, but twice this morning. I look forward to our uh, retreat together that's coming up. It's always just a blessed time of gathering together uh, for the word, for prayer, for praise. But really, as the theme of our retreat uh, just tells us, for the one another's, the opportunity for us to carve out three nights and four days together as a body of believers to practice the one another's. And that's uh, uh, the sweet part of our fellowship. So please come to the retreat with, um, with an appetite. It's ready to go. You know, sometimes when you, when you know you're going to have a good meal at night, and guys do this, we kind of prime ourselves in the day. We kind of have a limited breakfast and maybe even skip lunch so that we have a good appetite for the, for the dinner meal. Come to the retreat with a voracious appetite for the Word of God, with a heart ready to sing and to pray, to uh, love one another, and really uh, resolve in our hearts to seek God with all our might. So please come, but come with a heart that's yearning to see God glory, glorified in our midst. Now to uh, prepare for the retreat, we're going to do a two-part study in the Gospel of John 12 and 13. We last studied these passages uh, in 2004, and I wanted to do some prep work before we can sow good seed of God's Word in our hearts. We need to break up our hearts a little bit. We need to remove the weeds that will choke out uh, the seed of God's Word from bearing fruit. So we want to do some prep work before we get to our retreat. So that when we get there, we're ready, just soak it in and learn and grow. Um, I want to consider um, one instruction and one example. Next week, we'll look at the example of Christ in John 13. And consider Christ's example on the eve of his death. How he got on his knees, put on the apron of a servant, with a basin of water, washed the feet of the disciples to model for us his love for God's people and his humility. Really two virtues that are essential in the Christian faith and essential for us to practice the one another's. My prayer is that by studying that next week, it will put us in a right heart position to study these truths at the retreat. Grant us Understanding of humility, understanding of what motivates us to pr- practice the one another's. It's love for fellow Christians. That's next week. Today we're going to look at John 12 and look at what I believe is the main hindrance for us to practice in practicing the one another's. The main hindrance. This is, I believe, the chief reason why so many of us have a hard time with fellowship. Have a hard time with friendships, with serving one another, bearing with one another, 
honoring one another above ourselves. It's all the one another. It's loving one another. This is the chief reason. And that's the vice called the fear of man. The fear of man. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. And quickly note that here we find the close of our Lord's public ministry. Starting from John 13, it's a whole transition in his ministry. He turns from all the masses of people gathered around him to a private time only with his disciples. We find the final rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel in the close of John 12. Uh, Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So we find the parallel between the Gospel of John and the book of Exodus. Israel was now like Egypt. They had the heart of Pharaoh. Even though Moses performed so many miraculous signs, Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt would not believe in Yahweh. Though they prided themselves on being children of Abraham, Holders of the law of Moses, because of their sins, they were like the nation of Egypt and Pharaoh. Their hearts were hardened. Even though all these signs were performed in their midst, they closed their hearts. They hardened their hearts, and they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. In verses 40, 39 and 40, Apostle John gives us a theological reason why they did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord's anointed. The theological reason. They did not believe in Jesus because, verse 39, they could not believe in Him. It was an impossibility. Just like Pharaoh hardened his heart five times and God hardened Pharaoh's heart five times, and confirmed his rejection of Moses and Yahweh, God hardened the hearts of the Israelites, that they were not able to believe in Jesus. Verse 40, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So here we see the theological reason, God's sovereign reason, why the nation of Israel ultimately rejected Jesus as the Messiah. This explains to the readers of the Gospel of John when they received this letter from John's hands. And for them, they were perplexed. They were confused. This was promised in the Old Testament. They're preaching the Gospel to the Jews uh, scattered throughout the world. And yet, they were finding a persecution, a hardened heart, a refusal to believe. Uh, John was explaining to them what, what, what God was doing. In verses 42 through 43, Apostle John gives us the practical reason, the earthly reason, the moral, the sinful, uh, man-caused reason for their rejection. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, this uh, spurious faith, this disingenuous external faith, simple intellectual assent that Jesus is from, the, from, from God. I mean, it, it had to be blind, literally. They could not deny he was from God like Nicodemus. No one can deny, really, that you're from God because of the, of the bountifulness of all your miracles. Though they professed faith, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. 
so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 is the reason. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John here tells us plainly, the prevailing motive in the minds of the cowardly Jews. They loved above everything to be well thought of by their fellow men. They thought more of having the good opinion of man rather than the praise of God. They feared rejected by, rejection by men more than they feared the Lord. Here we find an insight to why people rejected Christ and why people reject Christ still today. Ultimately, it's not theological, it's not philosophical, it's not any reason assigned to Christ, any deficiency in his moral character, any deficiency in the uh, evidences found within the scriptures and outside the scriptures. Really, one of the chief reasons for people rejecting Christ is because of fear. They're governed by self-interest. And this fear of man, if it's not confronted, if it's not mortified, produces the most insidious fruit, which is to reject Christ as Lord and Savior. After all is said and done, for a great majority of people, this is the reason why they reject Christ. They do not follow Him. Because they fear They fear what their friends will think, what their siblings will think, what their parents will think. They're afraid of the opinions of strangers, of just this world. They consider the opinion of man more important than the opinion of God. So the result is rejection of Christ. Now with this, we want to launch into a a study of this biblical terminology, term of fear of man. Fear of man. What is the fear of man? Simply it means being controlled by people, mastered by people. It's worshiping people rather than worshiping God. Putting your trust in people or needing the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Simply put, it is replacing God with people. It is fear that is out of control, that is self-consumed, and therefore causes one to forget about God. Want want us to know, if you don't know already, that no one here is immune to this evil. That all of us are corrupted by the sin in our hearts, and. Um, We might be better, some of us might be better at hiding it than others. It might come out in different ways, not so visible to others. But all of us, we are participants of this phenomenon. We're not spectators. All of us are infected by this disease of fearing man, and and even Christians are often controlled and even crippled by this fear. And this fear must be dealt with, must be mortified, must be put to death. If we have any hope of being a 
a Christian community that truly reflects the love and humility of our Lord. If we want to follow the example of our Lord, who washed the feet of dirty sinners, and we want to do that to one another, so that all men will know we are Christ's disciples. Not for ourselves, but so that the gospel might be lifted up, that they might be saved. If we want to endeavor to be that kind of church, each one of us, we have to run to the line, face this enemy, and deal a deadly blow to it. This fear of man. Um, Wayne Mack in his book, uh, I think Fear Factor, has a, a list of symptoms of fear of man. Ways the fear of man, this disease is revealed. Let me just um, rattle off this list to you. Some symptoms of fear of man. You can kind of do it as a checklist, a spiritual inventory to see uh, how you, uh, how fear of man is um, revealed in your life. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. Are you someone that is easily pressured, influenced to go against your values, your convictions, your beliefs because you're concerned of the opinions of other people? That's a sign of fear of man. Are you overcommitted? And I struggle with this. I have a hard time saying no. I have a hard time. Um, my fear is letting people down, disappointing people. Are you over, overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no, even when wisdom dictates that you should? How about this one? Are you a people pleaser? Right. Do you um, flatter people? Right. Do you give gifts out of guilt, shame, wanting something in return? Do you seek to buy friendships with flattery or with gifts? Next one is self-esteem, a critical concern for you. Does your life revolve around what others think of you? Do you think about, what does this person think of me? What is that person? Does that keep you up at night? Does that cause you to have heart struggle? Do you fear their opinions? Do you seek people so that you might be pumped up by them? Right. You have relationships so that your ego might be stroked. You want, you need to fill, you need them to fill you up. If you struggle with self-esteem, well, that's a sign of uh, pride. Pride, because you want to be thought highly, higher than you really are. That's why you struggle with self-esteem. Low self-esteem means that you think too highly of yourself. As Christians, we have no concern about, about our esteem. We esteem Christ. Uh, we boast of Christ. We are not worthy of consideration. We are not worthy of people having opinions about, about us. Who are we that people should be mindful of us? Right? Who are we? We are the worst of sinners. Our concern should be the esteem of Christ in the, in the view of others. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Fear um, that people will figure you out. That people will see right through you. That you'll be exposed as you really are. This sense of being exposed, this fear, is an expression of the fear of man. It means that the opinions of other people 
especially their possible opinion that you are a failure, is able to control you or influence you? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you get easily embarrassed? A few more. Are you afraid to give a straight answer? Just tell people what you think. Not in a rude way, right? Not an inconsiderate, like, it's kind of rude. Some people are just, they have that disease of verbal rudeness. That's not what I'm talking about. But just speaking truth, what is right and what is wrong. When your friend or when your parents or someone in authority, your boss, your manager, your shepherd, your pastor asks you a question, you have a tough time just speaking the truth in love because your heart is to please people. Are you uh, concerned about just other people's opinions where it controls your behavior, controls your actions, your decisions, your speech. I heard of people not going to school or work because they had a bad hair day. They actually like don't go to school. They had a facial complexion issue overnight. I had a brother in our church. You know, he had surgery on Friday and he had a bandage on his nose. And he came to our church service on our 8th anniversary. I was right, Joe, right? 8th anniversary. (laughs) And we had, it was a like picture day. Everybody got together, and you can still, I think it's on our website, a picture of Pastor Joe with bandage on his face. Man, I, I'm encouraged by that. That's like, that's no fear of man. He's here because he loves God and loves the church. He's not concerned about himself, right? But some people, oh, my, my hair, it's, I slept on it wrong. <laughs> so I can't go to work, I can't go to church. Or, man, my face, or my makeup's not right today, or I can't seem to find matching attire today, so I'll be late to church or late to a meeting. A few more. Do you you lie to people? Do you tell, especially white lies? Uh, Do you isolate yourself from fellowship? Do you fear intimate relationships because of the fear of man? Because you are trapped by your own insecurities? You uh, separate yourself. Or the other extreme is you, you can't be alone. Right? You can't be alone. Like in fellowship, if you're alone for a few seconds, you just fall apart. You have to like cling to people. You, you need a friend. You need a boyfriend or girlfriend. You need your husband or wife. You need your children or you're not content. You're not satisfied. Christ is not enough. You need people. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend that says they can't live without you, then you need to live without them, right? (laughs) Because, you know, they're they're worshiping you, right? That's never happened to me, but if it happens, (laughs) if it happens to you, you need to uh, you need to move on, right? Um, All right. Some people want to be invisible. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to serve or love others. They just want to be quiet and be part of the crowd and be invisible. Just be spectators. That's fear, man. Or some people just want to stand out. They're like, boisterous. Like, they're just... They have a spotlight on themselves that they put up all the time. That's fear of man as well. Right. Oh, fear of man is dangerous. 
fear of man is very dangerous. Three reasons, three main reasons for the fear, dangers of the fear of man. First of all, as I said, fear of man is idolatry. Right? It is worshiping an idol yourself. It's worshiping man rather than God. When we think of idolatry, we think often of idols in the Old Testament like Baal or Molech or current idols like money, fame, or power. But scripture and experience tells us that people are our idols of choice. The most powerful idol that's in our hearts, not something, but it's someone. And no one is um, free from this snare of the fear of man. Even kings, people in the position of power are ensnared by this fear. We see this in 1 Samuel 15, 19 through 26. I'll summarize it. God told Saul through Samuel, go rout the Amalekites, their army, and destroy everything. God didn't want his nation to be polluted by the, the things of the Amalekite people. Destroy everything. And Saul goes, and he doesn't. He doesn't destroy them. He spares the cattle. He spares things and some people. And Samuel goes and rebukes Saul. Why didn't you obey the Lord? And Saul's response was, Oh, I was doing it to worship God. I'm going to take all these animals and sacrifice it to worship Yahweh. And Samuel said, No, to obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't need you to outthink Him. God doesn't need you to be a pragmatist. God doesn't need you to, to do something for Him. What He needs you to do, calls you to do, is obey. To simply obey God. Why did you circumvent His commands rather than fully obeying Him? And Saul gives the real reason. I was afraid of the people. I was afraid of the soldiers. They were clamoring for these things. So I gave in to them. Here is the king. Right? The monarch of Israel, and he was afraid of people. Right? So no one is free from this uh, insidious slavery, this idolatry. Even powerful people of old and powerful people in our time as well. Uh, let me read to you a quote from David Letterman. Right? You guys know who he is? David Letterman said, the single most powerful motivating force in his life is a desire to please others. That's his single most powerful motivation in his life. He said, every night, you're trying to prove your self-worth. It's like meeting your girlfriend's family for the very first time. You want to be the absolute best, wittiest, smartest, most charming, best-smelling version of yourself. If I can make people enjoy the experience and have a higher regard for me when I'm finished, it makes me feel like an entire person. If I've come short of that, I'm not happy. His happiness is tied to making others have a higher regard for himself. Chris Sever, the tennis player, said this, I had no idea who I was, what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed during the final years of my career and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion, I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel beautiful. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have an identity. 
this drug of applause, approval, is addictive. All men have this sinful thirst for approval, acceptance, to be liked. And so our hearts are idol-making machines. But we wake up every day and we want people to worship us. We make idols of ourselves and desire others to worship us. We praise others because we want their praise. We fear others because we fear of losing their praise. Ed Welch said, what is the result of this people idolatry? As in all idolatry, the idol we choose to worship soon owns us. The object we fear overcomes us. Although the insignificant in itself, the idol becomes huge and it rules us. It tells us how to think, what to feel, how to act. It tells us what to wear. It tells us to laugh the dirty jokes. It tells us not to proclaim the gospel. The whole strategy backfires. We never expect that using people to meet our needs leaves us enslaved to them. And this is the second danger of the fear of man. Fear of man is slavery and this master is a cruel slave master. It's a heartless master cruel dictator that that binds us and enslaves us. Proverbs 29-25 Fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So whatever you need in life, that controls you. If you absolutely have to have someone in your life or someone's approval, affirmation or praise in your life, that person controls you. As a result, you are in bondage, controlled, and feeling empty. That's why next week's example is so powerful. Christ didn't need anything from the disciples. Wash their feet. That's like you're proclaiming it loud and clear. I don't want anything from you. I don't want your praise. I don't want your applause. I don't want you to esteem me. I don't need anything from you. I'm going to wash your feet. When you do that, you see the freedom of Christ. He's so selfless. He's so God-centered. He can be a humble slave and wash the feet of his followers. But if you need the applause, the loyalty of people, then you're enslaved to them. And the third danger of fear of man is, to the degree we fear man, to that degree we are not fearing God. To the degree we fear man, there's a whole theology behind it. God takes it personally, because it's an affront to God. The fool says in his heart, Psalm 14, "There there is no God. So the fool says, right, externally, he fears God. But in his heart, he fears man. And so to, to God's eyes, the degree that man doesn't fear, that man fears man, he doesn't fear God. Galatians 1.10, here, here's Paul equating fear of man and fear of God. Am I trying now to win the approval of man or of God? They're diametrically opposed to each other. Right? Either you fear God or you fear man. There is no middle ground. Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And he does not qualify that at all. I would not be a servant of Christ. 
if I was in any measure seeking to please man. The Bible indicates that we stand at the crossroads between the fear of man and the fear of God. So this is a dangerous uh, uh, cancer. This dangerous uh, sinful state must be dealt with. The consequences of these fears are devastating and the most uh, devastating consequence of not dealing with fear of man is it will cause us, lead us to shipwreck our faith and deny Christ. So, the Bible gives us, tells us what the problem is. It teaches us the symptoms of this problem. Highlights to us the dangers of this problem. And the Bible also gives us the cure. The cure is, excuse me, right? A two-fold prescription on how to overcome this fear of man. The first one, it's pretty simple, but it's difficult, right? To overcome the fear of man, you need to replace that fear by fearing God. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is to fear the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. We need to understand who God is. That's why, after we have class, we have two, two sessions, just on the doctrine of God. That's why in all our songs, we want to have a lofty view of God highlighted in our, in our lyrics. That's why in our preaching and teaching, we want to put God at the center. Because having a right understanding of God will help us to fear God, and that will eradicate fear of man. The person who fears God will fear no one else. Ed Welch said, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. People control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not people. God is glorious and awesome, not people. These men, these Pharisees, were enslaved to the fear of man because they were blind to the majesty of God the glory of God. They were intimidated by the Pharisees. Their flowing robes, their big hats, their external religious rites. And so they were blind to the utter, unfathomable majesty of God. God calls us, commands us to fear Him. Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God. Serve Him only. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Remember Jesus in Luke 12 told the disciples, My friends, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him 
who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. So all the New Testament is consistent in calling us to fear God. And yet, this phrase, fear of God, has virtually vanished from the Christian landscape. Today, in most churches, most Christian circles, God has become a buddy, a pal, the old man in the sky, right? Who is always there for us. He has become this cosmic Santa Claus. And what we see is there's an appalling lack of fear of God in the hearts of Christian people, right? It's understandable non-Christians don't fear God. But among professing believers, there is a lack, appalling lack of fear of God. The modern church's God is so user-friendly, so sanitized, so man-centered, that fear of such a God is is not required and unwarranted. With every downward step our thoughts of God have taken, we have in like measure lost a holy reverence for Him. Stephen Lawson said this, step into the average church these days and you will likely see that the services are designed more to remove the fear of God than to promote it. It seems that everything done today in the church is geared to make people comfortable, not convicted, amused, but not in awe. In our efforts to make seekers more at ease in church, we have downplayed, to our detriment, the reverential awe we should feel in the presence of this holy God. We have so emphasized the horizontal aspect of our relationship, our intimacy, our closeness with Him, that the vertical aspect, the transcendent aspect, our reverence, awe, and fear toward Him, has been almost totally neglected. Sit under many of the sermons being preached today, listen to many of the choruses being sung, and read many of the books that are being written, and you will see that there is, for the most part, little of a high view of God being spoken, sung, or read about. As a result, there is very little that would instill in our hearts a healthy, holy fear of God. We live in a day in which a God, lowercase g, made in our image, has swept into our churches like a flood, and with it has come an unhealthy casualness, a glibness toward God that often borders on blasphemy. You know, I I sometimes go to other churches and preach this sermon, and I added this next part because... uh, so many times they've come to me and said, Pastor James, that sermon made no sense to me because we are not to fear. Right? We shouldn't fear God. Fear of God is an antiquated, dinosauric you know, remnant from religion. That is law. We're in the age of grace. We should not fear God. Your sermon was, to me, thoroughly unbiblical. That I'm totally, terribly mistaken. This idea that we should not fear God is an unbiblical view. It is an indefensible view. Deuteronomy 5.29 God said, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands. Deuteronomy 6.13 Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only. Read this earlier, Deuteronomy 10:12. What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? 
Fear of God and worship is central. Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Jeremiah 5, 22, should you not fear me, declares the Lord. Should you not tremble in my presence? Christ's words in Luke 12, I tell you whom you should fear. The one who has authority after, the, after death over your eternal soul. <coughs> Acts 9.31, the early church, they were living in the fear of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.17, fear God. Tells us we should never outgrow a healthy, reverential fear of God. Fear and awe of God. This idea that we should not fear God comes from a, a wrong interpretation of 1 John 4.18. 1 John 4.18 reads, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Aha! Right? 418, Pastor James. Perfect love drives out fear. You fear God, Pastor James, because you don't have perfect love. Right? You got a problem. I I humbly respond, but anytime you interpret a verse, the most important consideration is the context. So you need to go to verse 17, 1 John 4, 17. And it says, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Christ. Talking about we don't fear on the day of judgment, when day of Christ's return, that we'll perish in hell. No, we don't have that fear because we believe in Christ and we are like Christ. Our hope and our confidence is that on that day He will say to us, Welcome, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. It's talking about fearing God of punishment on that day, not living in the fear of God in the present No, as a matter of fact, not fearing God is a distinguishing mark of the wicked and unrighteous. The Bible says, it is the wicked who do not fear God. Romans 3.18 All these people who who are unrighteous, who are full of sin, full of self-love, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God. For believers, we fear God. Let me encourage you to fear God. Let me humbly beg you through the argument of the scriptures to fear God. And to aid, aid our hearts, the benefits of fearing God. You fear God, it'll give you wisdom. It'll give you insight. It'll give you understanding. It'll help you understand scripture. It'll help you to understand your own heart. You have a hard time understanding your wife. Fear of God will help you there. Okay? You have an understanding of your husband or your friends or your non-Christian co-workers or your neighbors or you have issues in your life. You're, you have a lot of dilemma. You're just always confused about life. Life doesn't make sense to you. You know what will help you? Fear of God. Proverbs 1.7 Because the fear of God is the beginning place of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. 
Psalm 25, 14. The Lord confides in those who fear Him. You fear God, God will confide in you. God will open your eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the law of God. He'll open your eyes to understand your own heart and understand this sin-contaminated world. Secondly, the fear of God is the proof of our obedience. And it'll help us in our obedience. It'll aid us. Our hearts are so unruly, so rebellious, prone to wander, prone to lead the God we love. Fear of God will be a good leash to pull us back to God. Hebrews 11.7 By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. He was building an ark in the desert. I'm sure there was a lot of ridicule, right? A lot of just uh, comedy at the expense of Noah and his family. He built that ark, right? Yeah, he was a holy man who loved God and obeyed God, but he had a healthy dose of the fear of God. He dared not disobey God. He reverenced God, respected God for him. His fear helped him to build that ark and finish it. Third benefit is that it protects us from sin and temptation. Proverbs twenty three seventeen. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. Protects us from sin and temptation. Fourthly, it is honorable to fear God. It is honorable. The church should honor and praise those who fear the Lord. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Here is this Proverbs 31 woman, and you can see by her life, by her devotion to God, her husband, her children, her household, that she's not seeking to conform to the pressures of her society. She's concerned of obeying God. So her husband, children, her community rallies around her, blesses her name. Because all of that is an evidence of her piety. All of that is a fruit of her reverencing the Lord. Two more, God is glorified by those who fear Him. Psalm 147.11 God is glorified when we fear His name. And the final one, arguably the greatest benefit of fearing God is that it is the one proven antidote to the fear of man. It is the one sure cure for the disease of fearing man. It sets us free from this bondage. This fear of God, Hugh Black said, kills all other fears. Oswald Chambers said, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you fear everything else and everyone else. And Pastor Joe read this last week, Psalm 27, 1, 2, and 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. 
though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear the war break out against me. Even then I will be confident because I fear the Lord. That's the psalmist is saying. That's what the apostles uh, practiced when they were being persecuted, when they were being beaten with rods in Acts 5. They commanded them, don't preach the gospel any longer in this city. And these apostles responded, we must obey God rather than men. Their fear of God liberated them from the fear of man, allowed them to courageously serve and proclaim Christ. So the first cure for the fear of man, first prescription is fear God. Fear God. The second cure is to love one another. Love one another. Don't use people. Love people. Don't need people. Don't need friendships. Right? Don't need people's approval or affirmation or acceptance. Don't need like being accepted or being liked by people. People exist not for our gratification. People exist so that we might love them in the name of Christ. That's a whole like transforming of the mind, right? That's a whole different view of our lives. Family members exist not for our ego. Our friends exist not for us, our pride. People exist not for our worship, but they exist so that we might love them and serve them with Nothing, no expectations, right? No strings attached. Right? We just give and give and give so that God might be glorified through our service to them. And we'll see the example of that next week. We'll continue on. Continue on. The second cure, Christ washed the feet of the disciples to show us instead of fearing people, we love them. By serving them. We'll see that model next week. So in closing, let me just uh, drive this home to all of us, myself included. These six applications, practical ways to uh, overcome fear of man and practice fear of God. First one is use right terminology. Don't use the word or as an excuse of shyness. The word is timidity. The word is fear of man. Shyness is selfishness. Shyness is pride. Shy, you're shy. You're withholding your love. You're holding your service to others because you love your own comfort, yourself more than others. Right? Shyness does not befit a Christian man or woman who's pursuing godliness. I can't find a single person in the Bible who was deemed godly and was at the same time shy. The only one is Timothy. And what does Paul do? Paul said, do not be timid. Timothy, you ever see the spirit of power, love, and self-control, soberness? Set aside your timidity, your fear of man, your self-centeredness. Put your eye, take your eyes off of yourself. And start serving others. Right. Use the right term. When you're prone to being shy, you say, I'm being selfish. 
I'm being rude. I'm being unkind. Don't allow this to get you off the hook from being sinful. We train our children not to be selfish this way. We don't allow them to be shy. We try our best to train them. When some, an adult comes and we say, shake their hand, and some, they run away, that's being rude. Right? You, you've, been, you've experienced that, right? You have a little kid, you go to them and they run away and you feel all moated. You're all like, oh, man. You feel like rejected. Right? They start crying. Like, what did I do? Am I that? You know? and that's, not, that's not considerate. We train our children. That's, being selfish is wrong. Right? So if, if a three-year-old can understand it, we can understand it. Secondly, don't listen to your heart. Preach to your heart. Preach to your own heart. Tame your own emotions, your own desires, your own temperament, your own personality with the Word of God. Your heart tells you, oh, don't talk to people. Your heart tells you, oh, you'll be rejected. Your heart tells you, oh, be isolated. Oh, they're all, you know, you, you accuse them of all these things. And you pride yourself being above them and you isolate yourself. Preach to your own heart, just like David did in Psalm 42. Right? Preach to your own heart. This is not positive thinking. This is not like pumping yourself up with like secular ideas. No, it's biblical preaching. It's not positive thinking. Right? You, know, you don't tell yourself, oh, I'm extrovert. You know, I, I like people. I'm out there. You know, I got to like, you know, walk the crowd and do, do my work. No, that's, not, that's, that's wrong. It's biblical preaching. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said our fears are due to our failure to store up, a failure to think, a failure to take ourselves in hand. You find yourself looking to the future, and then you begin to imagine things, and you say, I wonder what is going to happen, and then your imagination runs away with you. You are gripped by this fear. You do not stop to remind yourself of the Scriptures. The first thing you need to do is take a firm grip of yourself, and speak God's word to yourself. So preach, James, be humble. It's not about you. You're so prideful. I serve others, love others. Right? Bear each other's burdens. Confess your sins. Right? Don't be, don't be a prideful and not confess to be vulnerable. Shepherd your own heart with the word of God. Thirdly, understand, the opposite of fear of man is not courage. It's not power. It's not moral strength. The opposite of fear is love for God and love for others. The opposite of fear of man is to love people, love man. So I'll share this illustration. Again, if you were here in 2004, you remember this illustration. And I repeat again that I do not watch Oprah Winfrey. Right? That's not like a list of things to do in a week, watch Oprah. But I was hopping on my parents' store, and the TV was on on the corner. It was on Channel 7 at 3 o'clock. There was a lull in our business. I happened to glance, and like <laughs> it was just on, and I got stuck. Okay? But on normal occasion, I would turn it off right away or turn it to a sports channel. Okay? understand that. But on this afternoon, there was a story of this lady, this family. They were um, camping out in Colorado, in the mountains of Colorado. They had their uh, family SUV parked 
uh, in the parking lot. Mom and dad were setting up the, their campground. And their three young children jumped into their family uh, suburban, and one of the children moved the gear to neutral. The SUV started to roll down the hill toward a cliff. The mom and dad were frantic, horrified, rushed to the car. The children were screaming. The father jumped in, tried to put the car in gear, but he was struggling. Mom thought to herself of her love for her children and placed herself in front of the moving suburban. The car rolled over her, and it rolled over her body, over her shoulder. If her head was this way, she would have died instantly. Because her head was this way, she was immediately paralyzed. She was on the show on a wheelchair. Her husband was able to jump into the car and stop it. And they were all gathered together, being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. The children were speaking of their love for her. And Oprah Winfrey asked her, how were you able to do this? Stand in front of a moving car. And she said, it wasn't courage. I'm a a security cat. I'm a typical woman. But I'm a mom. I love my children. I'll give my life for them any any day. It's love that prompted her to stand before a moving car. Likewise for us. What causes us to overcome this fear? It's not courage. It's odd. I'm not that kind of person, James. I know it's love for others. Right? When your eyes are on yourself, you will be afraid. When your eyes are on God and on other people's needs, when you see people as Christ saw them, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, you see people to the eyes of Christ, moved by love and compassion, compelled by the love of Christ, you will break out of your shell, you'll break out of your isolation, your fear, being vulnerable, you'll step out in faith, and you will serve others, you'll minister to others, and you'll care for others. Believers must be characterized by the spirit of love and not of selfishness. Fourthly, Overcome this fear of man by loving other people in the church. Brothers and sisters, I start here. We're all family. We're nice people. We're kind, right? We're not like the world. The world, you try to do this in the world, they'll eat you up, chew you up, and spit you out, right? Here, it's safe, right? All the sharp edges have been covered over, right? It's child safety, safe uh, church. You practice this. Love, of, love for God and love, love for others. You overcome fear of man. It's a safe place for you to practice this. At home is where you learn to crawl, you learn to walk, you run, learn to run. Likewise, in the Christian church. If you're anywhere, start here and therefore don't be timid in the church. During fellowship, during the retreat, don't be timid. You're in a safe place. Don't be afraid of fellow Christians, right, who love God and love you. Don't seek to please fellow Christians. We are all servants of Christ. Do not, there is no need to be intimidated by the pastors of our church, right? Don't be intimidated by the leaders of our church. If you're intimidated, come talk to me. I'll share with you all their dirty, dark secrets. (laughs) I'll give you all their laundry, right? And you'll be like, oh, okay, I don't have to feel that guy anymore, right? 
No, like we're all sinners. We're saved by grace. You're trying to please the wrong person. We're here to please God, not man. Above all else, don't isolate yourself in the church. Don't fear intimacy. Don't fear friendships within the family of God. Two more. Fifthly, understand what Luther said. Christian is a free Lord of all, subject to none. Christian is a dutiful slave to all, subject to all. Being free from the fear of man does not mean I can do whatever I want. I don't, I don't care what people think, so I'm going to just be me. Accept me the way I am, right? Deal with it, right? That's who I am. If you don't love me, it's your problem. That's not being free from the fear of man, right? Instead of fear of man, we are to love man. This is how Luther articulated it. He said, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. At the same time, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. In one sense, we are perfectly free lords. No one can tell us what to do or where to go. Because our highest allegiance is to God, we do not have to be subject to what people tell us to do. We make our own decisions and plans without referring to other people or concerning ourselves with their needs. We are in charge of our own church choices and we have personal autonomy. I fully agree with that. But in the same sense, we are perfectly dutiful servants as well. Because our highest allegiance is to God, we have an obligation to respond to God's call to love one another. So while no one can demand that we act out our faith, God's call to us still stands. If we wish to be faithful to God's call, we must be servants to everyone. In other words, if we are really free, we'll be slaves to the right master. Thus, though we are free from all works, he ought to use this liberty to sacrifice himself, to empty himself, and to serve, help, and in every way deal with his fellow Christian and the world as he sees that God through Christ has dealt and still deals with them. This he should do freely, having regard for nothing but divine approval. Right? So everything we do, what binds us is love for God. Right? We make decisions, we live our lives, not because we fear man or we want to please one another, but in our desire to please God, we withhold our rights, right? We don't practice our freedoms. We restrain ourselves to serve and love one another. And then finally, the fear of God starts and ends at the gospel. Understand this. The gospel has set us free. The gospel has liberated us from this ensnaring bondage. That's the spiritual reality. We're just applying what the gospel has already accomplished. And the ultimate goal of being liberated from the fear of man is not for our gratification. It's not for our freedom. We want to be set free from the fear of man so that we would preach the gospel without fear to everyone who has ears to hear and a heart to understand. 
2 Corinthians 5:11 since then because we know what it is to fear the Lord we try to pursue men we are therefore Christ's ambassadors verse 20 as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God God made him who you know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God fear of man hinders us from speaking the truth Fear of God liberates us, sets us free to proclaim moderately, faithfully the gospel that has set us free to others so that they might experience this freedom of knowing God and fearing God as well. That's the ultimate reason for this freedom. That whoever you're intimidated to share the gospel with, you're afraid. You're, you don't want to take that risk. You don't understand what, what, how the chips may fall or the price you'll pay by sharing the gospel. Understand, you've been set free from that for that purpose so that you might deliver God's message of free grace to that person for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I know that the Holy Spirit is using the scriptures to touch some uh, sensitive areas in, our, in all of us. That no one here is uh, above this snare, above this um, selfishness and pride and sinfulness that we have too many times failed in our obedience to you out of our idolatry, worship of self. May the word of God that has pierced also heal, also build up, and also, Lord, grant us um, renewal in our holy love to you and for one another so that the word of God would do its full work of um, causing our hearts to be so filled with fear of you, that we will fear no one or nothing in this world. And so ultimately, we will be fearless proclaimers of the gospel of Christ. You've given us the gospel freely. We would, in boldness, freely proclaim the gospel to all who would hear so that it will be proven that what we are desiring in this world, what our agenda is uh, your approval your satisfaction, your pleasure, not others, not ourselves. May, may the gospel being the end prove to ourselves and to the world that we exist for your glory and not ourselves. We pray that uh, you'll do a gentle but quick work of this in our hearts so that when we get to the retreat, without hindrance, we'll be able to truly be a community of believers practices these one another's faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.